Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Brian Stead, the host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, ancient history fangirl. Samuel Hansen, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jenny Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. David Petrusha. Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus. Jenny Williamson. Zachary Davis. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on June 27, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day presenting a wide range of topics as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved in Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligent Speech 2020. Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 130, Hutchinson versus the Mob. First of all, as you will have heard from the promo, the 2020 Intelligence Speech Conference is coming up, and I will be attending. I'll be giving a presentation on American history and taking part in the Ancient History Roundtable, which I'm very excited about for those of you who remember the old Hannibal and the Punic War days. If you don't know that, you might want to listen to my other shows. They're not bad. Tickets are available and there will be a lot of other great history podcasters there, so it should be a fun day. And uh, yeah, check it out. But now, back to the show. In our last episode, we looked at the establishment of the Rockingham Ministry as Grenville fell from power, while the colonies reacted to the Stamp Act and the Quartering Act. We focused, in particular, on the reaction in Williamsburg, as Patrick Henry, who had been an assemblyman for less than two weeks, launched the Virginia Resolves. The reaction in Virginia was uh, actually quite muted. The first newspaper to actually publish the Resolves was the Newport Mercury, nearly a month after Henry's fiery speech. This was quickly followed by a number of other newspapers, including the Maryland Gazette. This is interesting, because it shows that the reporting of the resolves started in the north, and then made its way southward rather than naturally emanating out from Virginia, as you might expect. It also helps to explain some issues with the reporting. It's unlikely that the editors of these newspapers 
understood what had happened in Williamsburg. There was no mention, for example, that the fifth resolve was removed the next day. That was the particularly inflammatory one. I'll quickly remind you of it. Quote, Resolved, therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony have the only and exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that every attempt to vest such power in any person or persons whatsoever other than the General Assembly aforesaid has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. End quote. This is odd enough, but then there is the matter of two additional resolves that somehow ended up attached. To this day, no one knows who wrote the 6th and 7th resolves, or how they end up attached to the other five. I'll quote them here. 6. Resolved. That His Majesty's liege people, the inhabitants of this colony, are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatever, designed to impose any taxation whatsoever upon them, other than the laws or ordinances of the General Assembly aforesaid. 7. Resolved, that any person who shall, by speaking or writing, assert or maintain that any person or persons, other than the General Assembly of this colony, have any right or power to impose or lay any taxation of the people here, shall be deemed an enemy to this His Majesty's colony. End quote. Now, this went way beyond what the Burgesses had actually said, but the American press were reporting that this was the official stance of the General Assembly of Virginia, the Old Dominion the oldest and most influential colony. It was at this point that, to the astonishment of Grenville and Franklin, resistance to the acts spread across America. The place where words turned into action first was, predictably, Boston. A group of artisans and merchants known as the Loyal Nine who had generally been favourable towards the government, were pushed away by the Virginia Resolves. Their mood was summarised by a piece in the Boston Gazette on July 8th. Quote, The people of Virginia have spoke very sensibly. Their spirited resolves do indeed serve as a contrast for a certain tame, pulsinanimous, daubed, insipid thing, delicately touched up by and calls an address, which was lately sent from this side of the water, to please the taste of the tools of the corruption on the other. We have been told with an insolence the more intolerable, because the disguised with a veil of public care, that it is not prudence for us to assert our rights in plain and manly terms, nay, we have been told that the word rights must not be named among us, cursed prudence of interested, designing politicians. End quote. The Loyal Nine set about raising a mob to force the resignation of the stamp distributor. They spent some time dealing with the leaders of the two city mobs, 
one centred on the north side of the city and another on the south, to forget about their differences and take united action. With them finally convincing the mobs to take action on Wednesday, August 14th. On that morning, the Bostonians found a pair of effigies on High Street, one of the Stampman and another representing Butte and Grenville. The effigies attracted a crowd, and when the sheriff tried to cut the effigies down, he was threatened and he rushed away to tell the governor that a riot seemed imminent. That evening, a crowd of 3,000 men tore down the stamp office by the wharf, taking the timbers to the house of the stamp distributor, where they beheaded his effigy. The distributor had already fled his house, so the mob demolished it. The leadership had seemed to lose all control, but by midnight the mob dispersed. The next day, the stampman renounced his appointment. It saved him, but was a headache for Governor Bernard. On the 14th, he was informed that it was impossible to call the militia, so Bernard hid his silver and fled to Castle William, a fortification of Castle Island, best known to myself as the headquarters of the Minutemen in Fallout 4, at least after the Myalurk Queen has been destroyed. Only Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson had been bold, and that only guaranteed that he would be on the receiving end of the mob's ire in the future. Hutchinson was not popular in the best of circumstances. He'd been unpopular for years, taking many positions in the colonial government and collecting multiple salaries. He promoted family and friends to key positions, and sided with creditors in a recent financial crisis. This anger went much deeper than the Stamp Act, and it erupted two weeks later on Monday, August 26th. Crowds had been pouring into Boston all day from the surrounding countryside. Governor Bernard fled to Castle William, and the customs officers were nowhere to be seen. But Hutchinson made no preparations as a mob gathered on King Street. They broke into two groups and started going around, destroying houses of prominent hated figures, and drinking whatever they could find. Hutchinson was eating with his family when messengers warned him that a mob was on its way. I'll use Hutchinson's own account of what happened next. Quote, We fled to a neighbouring house where I had been but a few minutes before the hellish crew fell upon my house with the rage of devils, and in a moment with axes split down the doors and entered. My son, being in the great entry, heard them cry, Damn him! He is upstairs! We'll have him! Some ran immediately as high as the top of the house, others filled the rooms below and cellars, and others remained without the house to be employed there. Messages soon came one after another to the house where I was to inform me the mob were coming in pursuit of me and I was obliged to retire through yards and gardens to a house more remote where I remained until four o'clock, by which time one of the best finished houses in the province 
had nothing remaining but the bare walls and floors. Not contented with tearing off all the wainscots and hangings and splitting the doors to pieces, they beat down the partition walls and, although that alone cost them near two hours, they cut down the cupola or lantern and they began to take the slate and boards from the roof and were prevented only by the approaching daylight from a total demolition of the building. The garden fence was laid flat and all my trees and broke down to the ground. Such ruins were never seen in America. Besides my place and family pictures, household furniture of every kind, my own children and servants' apparel, they carried off around £900 sterling in money and emptied the house of everything whatsoever, except a part of the kitchen furniture, not leaving a single book or paper in it, and have scattered or destroyed all the manuscripts and other papers I've been collecting for 30 years together, beside a great number of public papers in my custody. End quote. As Hutchinson surveyed the ruins of his former life the next morning, he was met with a rather difficult problem. He had been completely overwhelmed by the unexpected reaction to the Stamp Act. It was clearly going to be unenforceable in Boston, but legal proceedings and businesses couldn't operate without the stamps. He wrote to Parliament recommending they repeal the Stamp Act rather than try to apply it with force, yet there was something Hutchinson hadn't realised. Events had already spiralled. Following the events of the 14th, groups calling themselves the Sons of Liberty started to emerge. They followed the practice of setting up effigies and raising mobs, as the Loyal Nine had done in Boston, and likewise found the mobs often had a mind of their own. On August the 27th, they broke out in Newport, Rhode Island, forcing the resignation of the stamp distribution officer. Officers in New York and New Jersey resigned before riots could break out there. As officers arrived in America from England with their stamps in Virginia, South Carolina and New Hampshire, they resigned when they were met by angry crowds in the ports. Others took a different tack, such as Maryland's distributor. After refusing to resign after an effigy on August the 29th, a mob burned down his warehouse on September the 2nd. He fled to New York, where the Sons of Liberty kept him confined to Fort George. When he ventured out on November the 28th, he was seized by a mob, who finally forced his resignation. Connecticut attempted to enforce distribution, but the distributor was intercepted by a mob on his way to Hartford on September the 18th. They forced him not only to resign, but to throw his hat into the air and lead the chair for liberty and property. Humiliating both the stamp distributor and the governor, Thomas Fitch, who had been elected 12 times to the governorship, ruining his career. Pennsylvania's distributor attempted to make it work. Then word of the disturbances in New England reached them in September, and the pressure for resignation soon followed. The proprietary faction began forming mobs, attempting to associate the hated Stamp Act with the Assembly. 
a hastily gathered security force saved the distributor's house, as well as Ben Franklin's. The stress took its toll on the distributor's health, and he finally promised not to enforce the Stamp Act unless other colonies did too on October the 7th, saving his house. While his health recovered, the Pennsylvania Assembly pushed 10 resolutions declaring the Stamp Act unconstitutional, arguing that it was actually the proprietary faction who had supported the Stamp Act. In London, it was thought that the Stamp Act was a fairly uncontroversial bill. It was created by Grenville, with his keen eye for mercantilistic theory, and supported by Ben Franklin, the only fully respected American. By October 1765, it was clear that enforcing the Stamp Act would be next to impossible in every colony, with the exception of Georgia. This is where we'll leave things for this week. Join me next time when the colonial elite attempts to establish its control and fight back the mob. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.